Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. Look, we've all been waiting to see what lies might cost eventually. You already know what they can actually cost a family, maybe a country maybe a democracy, the toll, the human misery. But the question for a Texas jury today was what it should cost conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. We now have our answer, nearly $50 million. Now recall Jones was already ordered to pay more than $4 million in what's called compensatory damages just yesterday. That to the parents of a beautiful six-year-old child, a little boy killed in the 2012 attack. But today, they added $45.2 million on top of that, awarded in punitive or the punishment side of damages. Why? For spewing lies that have caused unthinkable harm to one family of many families destroyed by the Sandy Hook massacre. $50 million. And that's just one case. He has two more defamation trials awaiting him. So this is really far from over for the far-right conspiratorial host of InfoWars. This has really been a case that's centered around lies. And throughout this trial, it felt like so many additional lies kept getting exposed, like those texts that Jones said he never sent, didn't know where they were, never existed, all of a sudden surfacing in the inbox of the lawyers for the other side, after his own lawyers reportedly accidentally hit send. Was he caught yet again today in even more lies? Remember earlier this week, he was begging for mercy to a jury, saying this very thing. Any compensation above $2 million will sink us. Will sink us. Now, he awarded, he argued an award of more than $2 million would put him in financial ruin. And then last night, still trying to paint himself as some kind of a a pauper, he said this. $4.2 million. Now, that's more money than my company, and I personally have. I don't have all these millions of dollars they claim I have. Hundreds of millions of dollars we don't have. Well, that's fascinating. Because an economist who testified in his trial today, well, he begged to differ about what the we was in this scenario. He went through methodically all the forensics of Jones's finances and estimated to the jury that not only does Jones have $4.2 million, he may have a net worth of as much as $270 million. So where is all that money? Well, this economist argued that Jones tries to hide his wealth with personal loans and shell companies. The, the way the, the shell company would apply in this case is, is an internal set of affiliates that Alex Jones set up. I think Alex Jones knows where the money is. He knows where that money went, and he knows that he's going to eventually benefit by that money. He actually listed nine companies that Jones controls. And look at all of them on the screen there. Nine companies. 
Now, this financial expert who is testifying also said that last year, the year that Jones was found liable for his default for his very harmful behavior, he started moving $11,000 a day into one of his companies and then withdrew $62 million as well. You, you heard me right. He withdrew $62 million. So would more than $2 million really put Jones in a place of financial ruin if he actually has $270 million somehow, according to that witness, stashed in different places? Well, as of today, he's about to be poorer. Reaction now from a high-profile attorney who works on defamation cases. Ken Turkel was an attorney for Sarah Palin in her libel suit against the New York Times and also for Hulk Hogan in his privacy lawsuit against Gawker. Ken, nice to see you here this evening. Last time we spoke, we were talking about the Sarah Palin case. And here we are with Alex Jones. And I just wonder, when you hear the amounts of money that are being talked about, I mean, compensatory damages, 4.1, the idea of now the exponent of that very amount, nearly $50 million for the punitive side as well, are you thinking, one, will this stick? And two, what is the trend that's being set? Good evening, Lauren, and thanks for having me back. Um, so these cases generally are what I call outrage cases. And the conduct in them is usually very uh, aggressive, offensive type conduct. And in that respect, juries can, it happened in Hogan where we got an emotional distress award of 60 and our, our punitive of $60 million, then our punitive award was only 25 because at that time, Gawker's represented net worth was, I think, 150 or whatever, and the law would have bankrupted them. You can't, most states will have a law that says punitives cannot be used to bankrupt a company, which is why there's the discussion of net worth. The numbers don't offend me. Whether they hold up becomes a byproduct of Texas law where they're trying it, uh, and that usually is going to be somewhat well-established state law on the relationship punitives bear to the compensatory award. So you get a compensatory award of four or 4.1. I thought I saw Mm 4.1. A kind of, I don't want to say a default standard, but you'll often see punitives shouldn't be more than three times the compensatory award. But there, again, there are exceptions to that. The numbers do not offend me. Um, They hear the numbers thrown around by a net worth analyst, a forensic accountant. They hear hundreds of millions and this is the province we give the jury to punish for conduct. So they on can be notion, runaway though, Well, on that notion, I want to dig into that because you're calling it the outrage cases. And I think it absolutely, it sparks outrage to think about the level of defamation, which, of course, he was found to be liable for, but also the duration, the extent of it. I note that his attorney wanted them to sort of calculate it from the idea of I think it was like $14,000 an hour for every single hour. He talked about it to a tune of about a quarter of a million dollars. That was the thought. Obviously, they far exceeded that very notion. But on the idea of greater outrage, you have an opinion about the idea of how these outrage cases continue to be in the headlines and maybe setting perhaps a, a difficult precedent in the future. What's your thought? I wouldn't call the precedent difficult. I think what we're seeing... We're in August right now. We, we have seen three high-profile national-level um, speech privacy cases. Hogan was a privacy case, as you correctly stated, uh, but with a speech defense. Um, these other ones today, you know, they characterize this as a defamation case. 
when I looked at the default judgment, it's the, the default was on an intentional affliction of emotional distress claim. I don't know that I'd call the trend difficult or disturbing. I think what I would call it is um, the byproduct of this technology we have where information is traveling at speeds we never anticipated before and being disseminated so broadly um, and we just haven't accounted for it in the law. So juries are taking that mantle. They're accounting for it. Literally accounting for it in those very notions. And the idea yeah. you mentioned yeah. different <laughs> cases, of course. But, you know, for, for many, this case is even broader. I mean, obviously, it's about the tragedy of what happened in Sandy Hook. And it relates to the parents of this little boy and the personal lawsuit that's involved here. But broadly, people are talking about this case in the context of how one punishes disinformation, lies, how they punish and hold accountable when it's time to pay the piper. We've seen really that train has left the station in so many respects about people feeling emboldened to continue to say things, to make and turn a dollar on what they're doing and what they're saying to their advantage, whether it's political or otherwise. When you look at it from that context, do you, do you see a, a reason why this was the tipping point? I've thought about it a lot. I had a perspective on this case that was outside of the vacuum of this case, right? If you remember, we talked about Depp Heard, and my, my constant refrain was, this isn't a speech case. I, I went back and looked at it, and I still don't know that the speech was actionable. This case, to me, felt more like an intentional infliction case, which was the default. And what, in some respects, I don't get into metrics when I argue these, trying to, this many false statements, this many offensive comments times this amount you get a sense that there's an anger and a rage. And I think I'll, I'll use two examples, for instance, in Hogan, people identified with the idea that, that privacy rights being at threat in an internet age. In other words, the idea that by participating on these platforms, we somehow are being construed as giving up our privacy is not going to work. And they were outraged at the idea that they couldn't use social media and things like that uh, to visit with friends, whatever, without getting this argument from a gawker that we were just using the First Amendment to publish speech, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I really think that resonated. A case like this, you're seeing a pushback to the idea that this new type of journalism, that basically you, know, you can do it on a grand scale like an Infowars, but you can also do it with a computer, an internet connection, and an attitude. And we just haven't, we haven't developed jurisprudence. We haven't developed laws that are meant mm -hmm. to compensate beyond these common law claims. And so when I say outrage, I think it's people saying, wait a minute, do we want to be in this society, right? We want to punish this. We want to make it known we don't like this. Sure. Or the next question becomes, when is it entertainment? When is a journalist? And when are we going to do something about Section 230 to get this under control? Because you have to apply this. You can't mm -hmm. just say, you know, extreme right-wing conduct is going to create this. But, but does the analysis become any different if it's extreme left-wing conduct? Well, Ken, right? I think We're that's a great question. Dealing. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn that to our panel because I think that's a really important point to think about. The idea of, and is this really a left-right issue or a right-wrong issue when it comes to this? And the idea of the law catching up, as you have said, to what actually happens. Ken Turkel, thank you so much. Lord, thanks. Nice talking to you again. For me, too. And for more on the political and legal aspects of this case, I want to bring in Abby Finkenauer, Elliot Williams, and Alice Stewart. And also, we just got new audio from Scarlett Lewis, who is the mother of Jesse Lewis, about what she was thinking as she was testifying. Listen in. 
You know, when I when I got up on the witness stand and I looked at Alex, I thought about Jesse. You know, I'd been so nervous. I think that was obvious um, before I faced Alex. But once I looked into his eyes, I realized that's exactly what Jesse did to the shooter that came into his first grade classroom after just having murdered his principal and guidance counselor. And he stood up to his B-bully and uh, Adam Lanza and saved nine of his classmates' lives. And I hope that I did that incredible courage justice when I was able to confront Alex Jones, who is also a boy. And I hope that that inspires other people to do the same in their own lives. We all have the capacity for the courage that Jesse showed. And sometimes it does take courage to choose love, but we all have that capacity. Wow. I mean, that's just amazing to think about the idea of standing up to a bully and thinking about how to see it through what her son last saw before the tragedy. I want to turn to our panel now because that's, it's really heavy to think about. And it's, it's very difficult to even conceptualize as we see the mass shootings and school shootings in particular. We can't look at this in a vacuum at all. Nor can we look at the idea of disinformation and lies and profiteering off of that in a vacuum. This, what is happening in the outrage that our guests spoke about is even broader than what happened in Newton, Connecticut, right? You know, Laura, this past semester, I was a fellow at Georgetown at the Institute of Politics, and I used to tell the students every single week, now there is this blurry line between fake news and reality, and this idea that the guy posting craziness and lies on Facebook or InfoWars is actually a real news source. The most beautiful line today um, in the closing argument was that speech is free, but lies you pay for. And you ought to pay for lies. And hopefully what happened today will be a deterrent to these you know, liars and conspiracy peddlers on the Internet who are spewing this stuff and people are buying it. And that was an important point that the attorney made uh, for these parents was uh, as you, we have the freedom of speech. We, we can speak. And that's the great thing about this country. But when you spread lies and misinformation, you, there's punishments for that. And what we're seeing now, this is a first, I think, a very important step and monetizing misinformation. Right. Mm-hmm. When you put out misinformation and lies, there are monetary consequences for this. And Alex Jones is finding out uh, very uh, abruptly that this is what the consequences are for his actions. And, and Ken made an interesting point about the difference between uh, the, the vast difference between the compensatory damage and the punitive damage. Mm-hmm. And he says he's not upset by this. The, the punitive damages today were much greater than what was handed down yesterday. Right. But when we know that Alex Jones has a worth of $270 million, I'm not upset by $50 million punishment. No, and to mm-hmm. your point, Laura, I don't think this is about right or left. It is about right and wrong. And you can have your opinions, but you aren't entitled to your own facts to then go terrorize and take advantage of people and grift off of lies and misinformation. And that, again, I think is why this is so monumental. And I think there should be a lot of folks around the country paying attention to what is happening here and making sure that they understand the difference as well. It it shocks me, too. And you you all touched on this point. I mean, I, I remember beginning my career as a media lawyer and and sort of vetting sort of comments that were being made and thinking to myself about how you have media networks, et cetera, who are talking about the First Amendment. And we know how people misuse that. Everyone, your mother telling you to shut up has not violated the First Amendment. It's not what's happening. And I would know because I hear it often from my beautiful mother to stop talking to me. But the idea here of 
people like an Alex Jones or people who are saying, oh, I'm a journalist because I've said something and people responded to it. That's enough. And I want the protections of the media without any of the requirements of journalistic integrity. That's also a lesson here, right? That people have to think about what are the consequences. But will this actually put sort of the fear of the judicial gods in people? You know, I don't know, and I don't think so, because when we think about the First Amendment and talk about the First Amendment, set, a, set aside the fact that it was written uh, however many hundred years ago, um, the law as it developed was for newspapers and print and television and not being able to click a button and post lies around the world. And um, Ken said this in his comments before. It's just a different world in terms of the ability to disseminate information. How's that going to affect how people proceed on the Internet? I don't know. But look, $50 million is a lot of money. And when, when he put out this misinformation and wrong information about the, the shooting. And lies. And lies. And lies. Yeah. And lies uh, about these this this. Young child, he not only was shot by this person, he stood up and protected his friends, and he was a hero in the situation. Yeah. And for Alex Jones to dismiss it, it is really disgusting. But for him to, to put out this, uh, all of these lies time after time and finally be held accountable, what you two know in the, in the court, in law, if you're found guilty of something and you show some semblance of remorse, there's a slight bit of leniency when it comes to sentencing or, or damages. You show no remorse, no regret, no, no even idea that he wanted to pull back on this information. What he's done is he has taken this as an opportunity to sell products and make even more money on this. I, I, I tortured myself to go to InfoWars tonight to see what kind of stuff they have on there. And they are talking about um, how this is um, harmful to him and how this is a kind of a witch hunt against him uh, and going against him for, for speaking out. And they are making money off this, selling these snake oil products on that site. I'm just surprised there are people that are still buying into this nonsense. I'll tell you on that point, Alice, it's a really good point about what, how you're monetizing it. Um, and, but also, for anyone who says that this is just about a kind of censorship and trying to attack someone who's in the right wing, he has spewed a great many conspiracy theories over the course of his career. This is the straw that didn't just break the camel's back. This is where the law and the rubber it met the road. And so it's not about silencing him entirely. It's about when you violated a law or violated the notion of intentional infliction of emotional distress, that's why he got dinged. No one's telling him to stop every other time. But on that note, everyone stick around. I want to get more into this. And some good news on this Friday, jobs, jobs. Like you get a job and you get a job, Oprah-style jobs. I've always <laughs> wanted to do that. Job, job. It was cars, right? Cars. I'll take uh, Well, cars. you get a job, and you get a job, and you get a job. Get More cars. than expected job growth, completely blowing away economists' predictions. Should he be getting more credit, especially after this very big week of victories? We'll debate it next. And my Oprah impersonation. Well, what a week for President Biden. Let's start with today and, of course, what's going on. It's been an incredible time in the jobs reports as well and the numbers. The U.S. economy adding over a half a million jobs just last month, which more than doubled expectations. The world's most wanted terrorist killed in a CIA drone strike that Biden authorized. The Democrats' climate and tax bill back on track after Senator Sinema gave the green light. And gas prices down for more than 50 straight days. This is called a string of wins for the president who've been battling 
very low poll numbers. Let's talk about it now with Abby Finkenauer, Harry Enton's with us now, and also Alice Stewart. I'm so glad you're all here. Abby, we'll start with you. I mean, do you think this is going to change the trajectory or the thoughts about Democrats maybe being able to maintain the majority? Look, I think this week in particular, when you saw uh, what happened in Kansas, the turnout, people paying attention, the the hope that we felt again, and then to see the jobs numbers come out. Um, I'll also say this, you know, President Biden has gotten more done than, uh, definitely more than our last president and more than most other presidents have at this point in time in his tenure. I mean, something that we keep losing sight of too, and I don't think it's talked about enough, how incredible it was that he got infrastructure done when he did. I think that's also a piece of why we have the economy hanging on the way that it is. And actually now, not just Ooh. hanging on, but doing well and soaring and seeing the, the job numbers where they're at, the unemployment being the lowest it's been in 50 years. He deserves credit for that. His administration deserves credit for that. And I think it's something that, again, we just need to continue to push forward here and see what happens next. And yet, I wonder, Harry, do mm. the poll numbers reflect that credit that she thinks is due? I mean, it depends which polls you look at, right? I can always give you a poll that tells you what you want to hear, right? Uh, but, I mean, look. Give us that one. Give, okay. Exactly. You or know, the other one. You know what? Uh, um, look, the president is still unpopular, right? Uh, perhaps he's gotten a little bit of a bounce, right? You know, he was not at the lowest level he is. He's gotten a little bit of a bounce over the last few weeks. You know, he was at like 37%. Now he's at like 39%. Uh, I guess 39 is better than 37, right? Um But the one thing we have certainly seen over the past few months is that congressional Democrats have seen their poll numbers improve. We've Mm -hmm. seen on the generic ballot, you know, a few months ago, the Republicans were up by three points. Now that generic ballot is even. And I I, be honest with you, I'm much more used to the fact of seeing a congressional ballot come and meet the president's approval rating. But instead, it's going the other way, where instead of the congressional ballot becoming worse for Democrats, it's becoming better. So I think it just depends which polling metric you look at. If I could say, I, I applaud uh, Abby's optimism. And this has been a good day for the yeah. Biden administration. It's been a pretty good week um, with regard to some successes. But this comes on the heels of what we had last week. We have historic inflation. We have the second quarter of GDP at a rise, which is by textbook definition, a recession. We still have high gas, uh, um, grocery prices, home prices, um, interest not rates. Gas prices. Not gas prices. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Um, but we also have to see what's the, what are the feds going to do with these jobs numbers? How's that going to impact um, what they do in terms of, of interest rates? I am encouraged by the numbers we're seeing today, but I still see the fact we are in a recession and it's not turning around and the policies that they are putting in place are not helping. This, this um, Manchin-Schumer proposal that Cinema has signed off on, the uh, Inflation Recovery Act, that is a tax and spend policy that is the last thing we need when we're in an inflationary period. And when we get down I, I, to November almost, and if this passes, this, Look, isn't, this is not going to be a, a win-win for people across Look, this country. you know, we know it's going to be a win for people across this country and everyday Americans when you've got big pharma coming out wanting to spend millions of dollars trying to stop people from voting for it. It is a win for the American people. It is a win for folks struggling to pay for their prescription drugs, choosing between groceries and being able to get the life-saving medication that they need. That is going to be, though, up to Democrats to go out and talk about what they did and make sure it's getting in front of people because this is 
is huge. Um, actually seeing these wins, whether it is um, on gun violence reform, whether it is on prescription drugs, whether it's infrastructure, again, I think one of the biggest reasons we are going to continue to see a bounce here is because there is real investment that's going to continue to be made across these communities all across this country. I I would just call the economy confusing, perfectly honest. You know, I try and put together these formulas, right, to try and predict how the midterms are going to go. You tell me the last election, which unemployment was the lowest it's been since 1969, while inflation is the highest it's been since the early 1980s. And I think that the American people are trying to figure it out for themselves, and they're getting mixed signals. As You know, you were saying, last week we were talking about high inflation, real disposable income dropping from a year ago, and this week we're talking about record low unemployment rate. It's just confusing. I don't know. I mean, think about it. In in politics, they say the person talking about the past is losing, except That seems to be the trend right now in one party. We'll talk more about this in a moment. Everyone stick around because ahead, a big development in the ongoing fight to bring basketball star and human being, an American citizen, Brittany Griner, home from Russia, where she was just sentenced to nine years following a politically charged trial. Potential breakthrough? Could that be next? We'll talk about it. All right, so Russia is now ready to talk prisoner swaps, according to its foreign minister. This comes just a day after Brittany Griner was convicted in a Russian court of drug smuggling and sentenced to nine and a half years in a penal colony. But the U.S. is hoping to get Griner and another American, Paul Whelan, out of Russia by swapping them for convicted Russian arms trafficker Victor Boot, also known as the Merchant of Death. So why does Russia want Boot back so badly? And what exactly will happen to Griner while negotiations are playing out. Former CIA Chief of Russian Operations Steve Hall joins me now. Steve, you know, my first question when I think about this entire scenario a day after hearing the sentence is, what is a penal colony exactly compared to what we're expecting or think of in an American prison? There's a lot being talked about about what it might be like for Brittany Griner in particular to be in a Russian jail, Russian prison, let alone a penal colony, what will this look like? Yeah, Laura, the, the, the penal colonies and the entire incarceration system in Russia is, is extremely dangerous to all human life. I mean, it's most comparable to the gulag, uh, you know, sort of like gulag light. Uh, and I think any Russian who survives that type of incarceration is fortunate, but an American, you know, who doesn't have the language skills necessarily, who doesn't understand the system as well, and certainly because they're an American, not a good time to be incarcerated in Russia. It's not going to be good. I don't know how many people uh, you know, have died from tuberculosis, for example, other communicable diseases in these prisons. I mean, it's downright horrible. And I have some sound from Trevor Reed, who you know was obviously released earlier this year in a different exchange. He had this to say about why the particular person, Brittany Griner, why this might be all the more harsh. Anyone who uh, is in a forced labor camp in Russia is obviously, you know, facing uh, serious threats to their health because of malnutrition. Uh, You know, there's little to no medical attention there whatsoever. Uh, Tuberculosis runs rampant in Russian prisons. Um, You know, there's, there's diseases that they have there in Russia which are largely extinct in the United States now. Will her race and the fact that she is openly a lesbian be added to the problem she faces there? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, she, 
Brittany Griner is, I think, for Vladimir Putin, sort of, you know, a combination symbolically almost, if, if you will, uh, of all the things that he hates about, about the United States. So first of all, she's an American, and because of Ukraine and because of a whole lot of other things, Vladimir Putin just doesn't like Americans. She's African-American. Putin is a racist. There's a tremendously large racism problem inside of Russia, so that's an issue. Openly gay, uh, Vladimir Putin has said he finds openly gay people disgusting. Um, and you know she's and she's a professional athlete. I, you have to remember that not too many years ago, you know, the Russians were the Russian national team was banned from competition from the Olympics. You know the largest athletic stage. So you know he has an American athlete who who is who he's accusing of, of using marijuana when his own teams were expelled from the Olympics because of drug use. It all comes together in Brittany Griner, and that does not is not going to make it any easier for her at all. You know, it's also the conversation about not only her, but Paul Whelan and Victor Boot. And this is, I mean, many people have talked about, and the former president spoke about over the weekend, the idea of what is perceived as the imbalance here in terms of the crimes that Victor Boot has been convicted of here in the States and that which um, Brittany Griner has now been convicted of and, of course, Paul Whelan. Tell me about Victor Boot and the idea of why would it be that this is the person that Russia wants so badly? And if, if they want him so badly, why are they slow to negotiate and get this done? So first of all, it's important to realize there is absolutely no moral equivalency between a guy like Victor Boot and either Brittany Griner or Paul Whelan. Paul Whelan was set up in a, in, a, in a fake intelligence operation. He was not involved in an intelligence operation. You know, Griner, we don't, know, we don't exactly know because you can never know what the evidence is against people in Russia because there's no rule of law. Victor Boot, on the other hand, you know, has, has, was convicted uh, of attempting to you know, kill American citizens. He's a well-known arms dealer. But the thing about the Russians are, is that they don't, while they don't have rule of law, they have these formalities. And so one of the things they're very big on is something they refer to as reciprocity. So if we got two Americans in a, in a Russian jail and we're saying, here's Victor Boot, a much worse guy, they're going to say, yeah, Victor Boot and who else so that we can get the even, you know, two plus two. The reason that they're so concerned, one of the reasons that they're so concerned about Victor Boot is because in my assessment, he probably has ties to the GRU, the Russian military intelligence. He went to several schools uh, to learn languages uh, that, that basically sort of feed into the GRU. Um, his activities indicate that he's had contacts. The Russians are very big about, about trying to make sure that Russians who have assisted their intelligence services or are members of their intelligence services are, are taken care of. So if you're in jail, the Russians want you to know as a Russian spy, don't worry, we're going to get you out. It might take some time, but we're going to get you out. So they're sending a message by trying to get Victor Boot out that others are also going to be gone after. Steve Hall, thank you so much for the context. It's so important to see where we are right now. Appreciate it. Sure. Sure. Well, now to a ruling expected soon on whether police can continue using, get this, keyword search warrants. That means using your online searches against you in a court of law. It will be one of the first decisions of their constitutionality. I mean, the growing controversy is up next. So here's a question. You ever wonder who might have access to what someone or you are Googling? Pay attention to this. A new case out of Colorado that tests the limits of the law when it comes to the reach of technology. I'm talking about what's called so-called keyword search warrants. It's where a police officer can get a warrant for a company like Google to hand over everyone who searched for a certain keyword. 
Now, in the new post-Roe era, one fear is that it could include people in states that banned abortion, who maybe search for an out-of-state provider or abortion-inducing drugs. Now, the theoretical isn't that far from reality. Detectives in Denver got one of these keyword warrants, forcing Google to turn over everyone who searched for a certain address the days before a fire. A family of five died in that fire, which turned out to be arson. My next guest is challenging the constitutionality of the warrant that was used in that Denver case. Michael Price, thanks for joining me this evening. You know, this is for many people, Michael, uh, a bit stunning to think about the prospect of a keyword search warrant. And yet we often think about in the backdrop of violent crimes and, and shootings and those that have sort of manifestos, how they're searching things. And so it seems to cut both ways. You represent a client who's challenging the idea of being able to have these warrants. Why? Thanks for having me, Laura. The, these warrants are not like regular search warrants. Uh, they're the exact opposite way of the way that normal search warrants work. Um, Usually investigators have a suspect, um, they develop probable cause, they go to a court and they get a warrant to say search that person's house. Um, here, what you have is police saying that they'd like to do the digital equivalent of searching everybody's house and figure out who the suspect is later. Uh, that's not the way that warrants work. It's not the way that the Fourth Amendment works. Um, in fact, it's the digital equivalent of a general warrant, the, the very thing that the Constitution was designed to protect against. Is this, though, to think about how it's being used? You know, obviously, technology and the way in which you can solve or investigate crimes has been expanded by the very notion of how people may be committing crimes, allegedly. And so in this notion, isn't it the equivalent of almost looking and working backwards and then still having to have information to substantiate their claims? You can't just convict somebody necessarily on the idea of a general warrant, but why not permit the authorities the opportunity to narrow down their suspects using technology? So these are called reverse warrants for a reason. Uh, it's instead of developing a suspect and making a case, it's saying, uh, hey, Google, tell us who did the crime. Um, can you please search through billions of people's search history to give us a lead? Um, it, it, every time one of these warrants are executed, uh, it searches not just one person or people in, in one state, but everybody who has done a Google search, whether you're logged in or not, uh, it's a, a massive digital dragnet. And, and the implications for privacy are, are broad and deep. I understand that. And of course, I think there are concerns that many people have, Michael, about that notion of that digital dragnet. However, they are sort of triangulating other factors, right? It's not as if you can meet a burden of proof. I know as a prosecutor on that notion alone, but is the idea of having to do even more than that? You ask Google for the information, you have this warrant, then you have to narrow down by other factors and cross-reference. Does that push it closer to, in your mind to not violating the Fourth Amendment, which is against unreasonable searches and seizures, that triangulation? So in, in our legal context, probable cause has to be tied to an individual. 
Um, it's not enough to just say a crime occurred, so let me just go searching um, and I'll, I'll tell you who I think did it afterwards. Um, it, it might be an effective way of solving a crime, but it's not a constitutional way of solving a crime. And uh, the idea that uh, there doesn't need to be a suspect ahead of time, um, that the police can just go on a, a massive fishing expedition uh, to see if anybody pops up, uh, is, is really antithetical to our entire system of justice. Um, you know, the, the issue here is that the police had no probable cause. They had no idea who committed the crime until they went to Google. This will be a really interesting case. I hope people are sticking by and thinking about what's happening here because it does have really broad-reaching implications, obviously from post Road to the case you're talking about as well, and what it means to generate a lead or the methodical practice of investigating. Michael Price, thank you so much. Thank you. Phil Mickelson and other pro golfers are suing the PGA over their suspensions for being a part of the Saudi-backed Live series. Are they being unlawfully punished or not? Next. Phil Mickelson and 10 other golfers who have played for Live Golf are now suing the PGA, saying the association is trying to protect its monopoly on professional golf by unfairly controlling its players. Now, the golfers want to play in the FedEx Cup playoffs starting next week, but the PGA suspended them for playing in the controversial Live Series, funded by Saudi Arabia. I'm joined now by the great CNN sports analyst and USA Today sports columnist, Christine Brennan. Glad to have you back on this story, Christine, because, look, next week the tournament's supposed to start. They're saying, PGA, this isn't about what you think about in terms of the Live golf tournament. It's about you wanting to be in control. How do you see it? I, I think, uh, Laura, that we are watching golf spontaneously combust, men's golf. Uh, literally a civil war is going on, and this is a sport that could implode in on itself. The staid country club sport of men's golf and women's golf, too, for that matter, uh, mostly old white guys and rich white guys, whatever, um, they are now at war. And it is, it's absolutely fascinating for golf fans. I think it's infuriating and confusing. And it may well affect the fan interest in the sport. Tiger Woods is certainly on the way out. And TV ratings have gone down without Tiger. Phil Mickelson, as you, of course, refer to, is part of this lawsuit. He's 52 years old and is playing some of his worst golf ever. And, uh, and golf is really at a crossroads and really in trouble as they fight it out. Obviously, the issue, of course, is these athletes, independent contractors, do they have the right to move around and play wherever they want? We will find out what a, what a court or what a judge says eventually. But in the meantime, the uh, collateral damage for this revered game is really something to behold. That's a fascinating thought because I remember, and you and I have talked about this in the past, when politics and football intersected or politics and basketball intersected. And there was, a, a, there was collateral damage in terms of fan interest. There were calls for boycotts in some aspects of things. There were the idea of, can't we just have anything in sports as true escapism and why do it? This, though, puts cold water on the idea of, no, no, no you're not going to be able to escape the controversy of that intersection. I mean, Saudi Arabia, MBS, the fist bump seen around the world, the idea of whether you can still play in the PGA. I mean, that's part of this, the idea of trying to, for some fans possibly, and the players, wanting to escape politics. 
Oh, totally. This is bringing everything home, all the dirty laundry. It, as you said, Laura, it's everything that sports fans don't want to have to deal with, and especially golf fans. I mean, these are often uh, well-to-do people. They uh, want their Sunday afternoon to watch Tiger win the Masters or Tiger play in the Masters or Phil win the Masters. And now the real world has crashed in. And it's fascinating. I mean, Phil Mickelson and these other live golfers, I've been very critical of the live tours, you know, Mm -hmm. Saudi blood money, MBS, the killing of and dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi. All of this is put into play here. But they left the PGA Tour. Now they're suing to come back to the PGA Tour. It has really rankled a lot of their good friends and their buddies, their pals, their playing partners who are still on the PGA Tour saying, what are you doing? You left, now you want to come back? How dare you do that? So it is extraordinary to see uh, a, a what we would consider, as I said, a staid, calm game, uh, the country club sport, the sport of ladies and gentlemen, mm-hmm. in complete civil war uh, with these athletes that are really at each other's throats. Well, you know what they say, the grass is always greener, but so then is greed. Christine Brennan, actually, I just made that up. You can quote me sometime. That's a really good quote. Take a note. That's a good one, everyone. Thank you so much, Christine Brennan. Have a great weekend. We'll see you soon. And hey, coming up, a $45 million judgment against Alex Jones. Will it stop the lies that built him an empire? Right back. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Don Lemon is off this evening, but I'm still wearing like lemon yellow for you in his absence. I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. Conspiracy theorist Alex Jones has been ordered to pay even more to the parents of a six-year-old little boy who was killed in the 2012 massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School. $45.2 million more and punitive damages on top of the more than $4 million in compensatory damages already awarded at the civil trial just yesterday for those deeply harmful lies that the shooting was a hoax, among many other completely false and outrageous claims. Now, under Texas law, there are limits on punitive damages of $750,000 per plaintiff. So it seems he won't be forced to fork over quite that much yet. He's still facing two more defamation trials, and one of them is in Connecticut. But it appears the jury did listen to this plea from the attorney for the Sandy Hook family. We ask that you send a very, very simple message. And that is, stop Alex Jones. Stop the monetization of misinformation and lies. An economist who testified at Jones's trial today estimated to the jury that Jones may have a net worth of as much as $270 million, but has been trying to hide his wealth with personal loans and shell companies. Now, Jones said at trial he'd face financial ruin if there was an award of more than $2 million. More lies on top of lies, perhaps? Scarlett Lewis is the mother of six-year-old Jesse Lewis, who was killed at Sandy Hook. After the jury's decision today, she referenced her beautiful son's courage when describing how she confronted Jones during her own testimony. You know, when I, when I got up on the witness stand and I looked at Alex, I thought about Jesse. You know, I'd been so nervous. I think that was obvious. 
um, before I faced Alex, but once I looked into his eyes, I realized that's exactly what Jesse did to the shooter that came into his first grade classroom after just having murdered his principal and guidance counselor, and he stood up to his bully and uh, Adam Lanza and saved nine of his classmates' lives. And I hope that I did that incredible courage justice when I was able to confront Alex Jones, who is also a bully. And I hope that that inspires other people to do the same in their own lives. We all have the capacity for the courage that Jesse showed. And sometimes it does take courage to choose love, but we all have that capacity. Courage indeed. Reaction now to this new decision by the Jones jury from former Congresswoman Abby Finkenauer, CNN legal analyst Elliot Williams, and CNN political commentator Alex Stewart. I'm glad that you're all here because there's a lot to unpack about that idea. And one of the things to keep in mind, Alex Jones, he's still on air. It's not as if he's been silenced. In fact, part of the trial in, the, in that phase has been about comments he continues to make. And so I just wonder your impression about the idea of how there's claims that, you know, he's being silenced by all this. He's still talking. He, he is. And let's just say to that mother and the other mothers and fathers of these children, you are doing courage and justice for your children by speaking out and, and going against people that are making up this nonsense. Look, in America, we have freedom of speech. We can all say what we want. We also have free markets. You can sell uh, goods and services. This is the bad side of that. This is someone who is using his freedom of speech to, to peddle conspiracy theories, and he's selling it on a marketplace. And unfortunately, the law of supply and demand, when he's selling these conspiracy theories, there are people out there, many people, who are willing to buy this. And he will continue to do so until he has stopped in a greater way than this. Well, fortunately, what these parents are doing is they are um, finding a way to monetize his misinformation and lies. And he is being held accountable for the lies and misinformation he has peddled at the expense of these poor victims. And while this is only $50 million, and we know that he has $270 million, I hope that the next case that comes before the courts and the next and the next delivers the same message that we cannot continue to have these types of lies peddled in the marketplace. But here's how it's being spun a little bit, right? I mean, and I know lawyers are going to lawyer, right? <laughs> They're going to lawyer. But here is a lawyer for Alex Jones who says that this is really about the First Amendment. And, and well, I'll let him speak for himself. Alex Jones will be on the air today. He'll be on the air tomorrow. He'll be on the air next week. He's going to keep doing um, his job. His reaction was that, you know, he'd been found guilty before he ever had a chance to defend this case on the merits, that the, um, you know, the First Amendment is under siege, and that uh, he looks forward to continuing the fight for freedom of expression. Well, first of all, Elliot, right, it wasn't like he just, he, he did not have a chance to defend himself. It was yeah. a default for a reason. Yes, and he, because he did not um, defend himself. Literally, he didn't bring, so they issued a default judgment against him. And you know, so much of this, the discussion around it has been about defamation, about hurting someone's reputation or someone. And we haven't talked as much about intentional mm. infliction of emotional distress, which is literally something you can sue someone for, for hurting another person in an extreme and egregious way. This was just not protected speech by any stretch of the imagination, whether you were causing someone financial harm, which is what defamation is, 
or literally saying things that are so egregious and so shocking that you ought to pay $50 million for them. So, no, this is not about the First Amendment. It's a distraction. It's a red herring to do that. And he knows that. He's a lawyer. He knows that. And politically, though, he knows this is going to resonate for the same reason you talk about, Alice. There's, there is as much an appetite for conspiracy theories, unfortunately, as there is an appetite for, hey, you are trying to shut me up, and this is the government. This is not the government. These are parents of a young boy who was killed. But the government's trying to silence my viewpoint, my right-wing viewpoints. I'm a conservative. What do you say? Well, I mean, heck, you saw him being defended today at CPAC. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene sitting there having his back and defending this piece of human garbage. And it is despicable that there are people that, one, will listen to the guy, but there are. He has a base, he has a platform, and he's going to keep getting money from it as long as he's allowed to. And you also still have people in the Republican Party willing to sit there and have this guy's back. It's absolutely disgusting. Well, when I hear the words earlier, we had this comment conversation about how some of the comments in support of him are about the phrase you'll find familiar, a witch hunt which to me harkens back to many other conversations about lies that are spewed and about monetizing that that very notion. Is there a risk that he becomes the political martyr? No. Not in this case. Look, look, so many of the nonsense he's put on that site, he talks about the origin of of the COVID vaccine. He talks about... um, the election fraud. He talks about all kinds of conspiracy theories. This is not going to make him a martyr. This case, if you look back to the origin of why he started this nonsense, it was because he felt as though this was the government's way of taking your guns away from you and is appealing to the Second Amendment crowd. But you don't do it on the backs and at the heartstrings of parents and children in a, a mass shooting like this. This is, there's, this is wrong on so many levels. And this is not the the hill he's going to die on. For the first time tonight, I think we're going to have a little bit of a disagreement here. No, I think he does become a martyr here. He's already on InfoWars tonight talking about this garbage. And there are people who are listening to it and actually think that this individual is some sort of hero. Um, so, So he is somebody who the deep state and the lefties or whomever else who are coming after you, you Americans... Um, they are now taking $50 million away from Alex Jones. So, oh, I think the martyrdom complex is starting. It will be in full effect. It's not going anywhere. And like you said, Laura, he's still got his platform, and he's still going. It's well, the thing is, he's, I mean, the, because we know the notion of a martyr and the martyrdom is, some, in some instances, successful. Not that he deserves to be. He's very clear. No one's right. saying that. Yeah. Yeah. But the idea of him using it as a way of saying, look, you know what? This was not about the comments that I made as deplorable as they are about Sandy Hook. It's because I make comments about other things they, the boogeyman of they, do not like. And that's what I think about the idea of how this is even a broader discussion about whether this will be a blueprint or will it be a deterrent. I mean, they're always the victim, right? Like, uh, And honestly, again, it's not really that different than former President Trump, always the victim, right? Always the victim. But let me just keep pushing more lies, more conspiracies, and get more money out of people who want to believe it. And it's just sad that this is where we're at. But again, I really hope people are paying attention to the fact that there are 
consequences. You are, again, entitled to your opinions, but you cannot just make up your own facts and terrorize people with them like we've seen with Alex And Jones. the fact that Texas has a cap on damages doesn't mean that Connecticut or New yes. Jersey or anywhere else somebody in the future might be sued for this kind of nonsense might still ha- actually have to pay up. It's just, and this is the thing, it varies state by state yeah. wherever we are. And there are, and there are other consequences that I think will come out of this too, whether or not this has to do with InfoWars or not. Mm-hmm. The fact that his attorney turned over his text messages for the last two years to the opposing counsel, mm-hmm. if that information ends up in the hands of the DOJ, he could face other charges that could potentially be much more damaging than $50 million. So that's the next shoe to drop with regard to him. I mean, the deterrent, the idea of accountability, these are sort of, they, they used to be the sword of Damocles that people feared. People become emboldened when they're not held accountable. Yeah. That's, what, that's the risk here. More on this in a moment. Everyone stick around. We have a lot more to talk about. And remember, next hour, CNN's Drew Griffin takes a deeper dive on this with his special report. Called Megaphone for Conspiracy, the Alex Jones story. It's coming up right after us at 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNN. Now, if you are convicted of a federal crime and you're awaiting sentencing, how do you spend your Friday night? And if you're Steve Bannon, you you headline CPAC. We're in Dallas with a look at where the conservative movement is headed after a week that saw a defeat on the abortion battle but key victories for Trump-supporting election deniers. All of that, next. We're at war. We are at war. We're at a political and ideological war. You can say anything else you want about it, but we're at war. Think about after high noon on the uh, 20th of January 2021, when an illegitimate imposter took over 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and took over the administration. A fresh round of baseless election denialism from Steve Bannon and talk of war. Hmm. He's on stage right now at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference being held in Dallas. He's got a few months left, but it's true, before learning his jail sentence after being convicted for contempt of Congress. You'll remember he was found guilty of defying a congressional subpoena from the January 6th Select Committee. Now, Bannon is one, frankly, of many election deniers finding a very welcome audience this weekend, like the MyPillow guy. Over 54 countries have now been taken by the machines or are getting taken by the machines. And you never get to go back. Venezuela, Australia, they're gone. You don't get to vote out the machines once they're there. Once they're there, you don't get your country back. Also on display in Dallas, a performance art jail cell depicting a January 6th defendant. And along with all of that, some of the next wave of Trump acolytes, fresh from primary victories this very week. King Law is in Dallas, where the former president himself will address the CPAC crowd tomorrow night. And Kyung joins us right now. Hi, Kyung. What are you looking at? Oh, well, Laura, what we really have seen over the CPAC conferences, 
uh, at least electorally, um, a victory lap for the candidates who Trump endorsed. This was a week of primaries in Arizona and Michigan in particular, where election deniers came out on top. A good week for them, but also for Donald Trump. Fresh off a Republican primary victory for Arizona's governor, Carrie Lake arrives to a hero's welcome at the conservative political action conference in Dallas. In her home state, she is leading in every single county, centering her campaign on Donald Trump's lie about the 2020 election, a position she pledges she will not pivot away from. We outvoted the fraud. We didn't listen to what the fake news had to say. The MAGA movement rose up and voted like their lives depended on it. Trump endorsed election-denying candidates won up and down Arizona's ballot Tuesday. U.S. Senate candidate Blake Masters and Secretary of State candidate Mark Fincham, who says he wants to eliminate all voting machines. Paper ballots, hand counting on one day. We can do that. We used to do it. Election experts say that would mean months-long counts. 2020 deniers, despite no evidence of widespread fraud, won. And not just in Arizona. Ah, thank you, Michigan. But in Michigan this week, Republican gubernatorial nominee Tudor Dixon. Yes or no, do you believe Donald Trump legitimately won the 2020 election in Michigan? Yes. Now, Dixon is dodging that question. There were some things that happened in Michigan that didn't happen in other states, which are very concerning. These wins are just the latest in the steady advance by those sowing distrust in U.S. elections being put on the November ballot. In Nevada, Jim Marchant is a Republican nominee for secretary of state running to oversee his state's elections. He told us this earlier this year. I believe it was stolen, yeah. I mean, I believe that... um, There were enough irregularities that we need to do an audit. And then there's Michigan's Christina Caramo, another Secretary of State candidate who doesn't believe the 2020 results. Election liars on state ballots show Trump's grip on the GOP, celebrated by far-right propagandist Mike Lindell at CPAC. Everybody's going to go vote these great candidates like Kerry Lake and override the machines. On the CPAC agenda, they stole the 2020 election. It is relitigating 2020, but also looking ahead to November and beyond. They want to rig elections, institutionalize voter fraud. We're not going to allow it. I see your hat there. Yes, you bet. How important is it for you to talk about 2020 as we look at 2022? He won. He won in 2020, hands down, across the nation. What does this say about where the Republican Party is in this country? MAGA. (laughs) They're with MAGA, they're with Trump, they're Trump followers. Now, Carrie Lake is such a big star among the far right that she is scheduled to speak again, at least per her Twitter account. She tweeted that she will be the last scheduled speaker before the big guy himself, Laura, Donald Trump. Laura? Wow, that's interesting, Kyung. And, you know, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, he actually spoke yesterday, and he recently said something about wanting to prevent Europe from becoming, and these are his words, becoming a mixed-race continent. Here's what he said last night. We have to be brave enough to address even the most sensitive questions, migration, gender and the clash of civilizations. Don't worry, 
a Christian politician cannot be racist. If you separate Western civilization from its Judeo-Christian heritage, the worst things in history happen. Let's be honest. The most evil things in modern history were carried out by people who hated Christianity. I mean, Kyung, line by line, you can go through that and scratch your head, be offended, wonder where the facts are to support any of the statements. But I do wonder, in the audience, how was he received? Very well. Uh, you know, very, very well. Uh, this was a crowd that received him warmly. They applauded and they got exactly the kind of rhetoric that they wanted. Now, let's remind you of exactly who they heard from. Viktor Orban is the head of a country that has been making a steady, incremental step to authoritarianism over the last decade or so, that his government has managed to assail the rights of LGBTQ community, women, academics, the media. Human Rights Watch has, has laid all of this out in a 2021 report. And the media that he's talking about, uh, the vast, vast majority of it in Hungary is controlled by Orban or his allies. So the electoral system even, Laura, is bent and has been rewritten in order to favor the ruling class. If this sort of system does not sound like any sort of democracy that the founders of America wanted for this country, yet this is who CPAC invited to speak on the stage, and this is the stage where 30 members of Congress are going to be speaking on the same stage as the leader of Hungary, Laura. And this is a place where he was warmly received. Ken Law, thank you so much for your reporting. Coming up... Major developments in the police killing of Breonna Taylor. The feds take action in a case that includes allegations of a cover-up. But why did it take so long for prosecutors to even reach this point? That's next. News of federal charges in the Breonna Taylor case bring with them questions of why the family had to wait so long for this moment. Y'all learning what we've been seeing was the truth, that they shouldn't have been there. Four current and former Louisville police officers are facing various charges. Three accused of lying to get the warrant. The one who opened fire accused of violating her civil rights. The charges coming not from the local or state prosecutors or even the administration that was in office when Taylor was killed. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced the charges. Get this, 874 days after Taylor's death. Let's talk about it now with the long and the long legal road it took to get to this point with the great Van Jones. Van, it's so good to see you. But on this it is heartbreaking to think about just that number, the amount of time the family has waited to even have the needle moved in any direction after much disappointment. Tell me, why did it take this long to get here? I recall yeah. that there was first initial, there was nothing wrong. Right, right. Well, listen, ordinarily in these cases, the, the police, they move to protect their own. The difference between this case and say what happened uh, with George Floyd is, 
in, in that case, you did have at the state level some leadership. You had Keith Ellison, who was at the state level was willing to say this was wrong, what happened to George Floyd, and he took action. You had the opposite of that at the state level here. And so you just had this long delay. And you got to give credit to the mother. She just refused to let this thing go. And she fought day after day after day after day. And can you imagine, you, you can't even rest and, and, and honor your daughter's death because you have to fight every layer of government and two administrations just to get the obvious charge. And don't forget, people may not remember, Breonna Taylor was literally doing nothing wrong. She was asleep in her bed. People kicked in the door and started shooting. She was shot eight times. And, and, and they were trying to serve an award, a warrant on someone who was already in custody. So from the very beginning, this thing was a stench in the nostrils of God. It was never made any sense. And it took a new administration and Merrick Garland to finally do the right thing. But the credit goes to the mom and all the activists like Tamika Mallory and others who just refused to let this thing go. And remember, just if you think about the then Attorney General of the state of Kentucky, Daniel Cameron, talking about these issues, about whether the grand jury was going to prosecute or whether they had printed charges about the officers who were there on scene as well. If you think that was just sort of an in-the-past conversation, man, today he made these comments. I want you to listen. I think it is worth repeating again that our investigation found that Mattingly and Cosgrove were justified in their use of force after having been fired upon by Kenneth Walker. According to Kentucky law, the use of force by Mattingly and Cosgrove was justified to protect themselves. That's Do you think anything bears, bears repeating? I mean, it's just outrageous because why was this young brother firing? He was firing because somebody kicked in the door and they were shooting from the beginning and he's trying to protect himself. He gets on the phone and when he, when he, when he calls 911, he doesn't say, hey, I, a bunch of cops are here. He goes, somebody kicked in the door and was shooting and now my, my, my girlfriend is shot. He doesn't even know when he's calling 911 that there were cops shooting. He still thinks while his, his girlfriend is dying that he's the victim of a home invasion. So for someone like Cameron to not acknowledge the basic facts here, that this was a no-knock warrant, uh, unjustified no-knock warrant, executed badly, and then 20 rounds shot off, and an innocent woman dead. Look, this is the difference between somebody like him at the top level as a top cop versus a Keith Ellison as the top cop. Keith Ellison saw the facts and got the prosecution. This guy is still spitting nonsense even after the federal government has finally come in. And just so we're clear, we're talking about, I mean, this is in part about the idea of why they were there in the first place. The substance of the reasons to even get the warrant, the information contained in the warrant to lead them to being at the home. And that's part of why DOJ is there. And not just investigating this aspect of it, man. They're investigating the Louisville Police Department in its entirety. This is not uncommon to look into police departments for the pattern or pattern practice, practice of civil rights violations. Right. And, and that's why, listen, that's why we have three levels of government, uh, because often people can't police themselves. Um, the reality is a pattern and practice of misconduct. You know when you have an innocent woman shot to death in her bed, killed, and they actually then charge her boyfriend at first with a thing. You're dealing with a police department that is not capable of policing itself. 
Then you have the failure at the state level. Finally, we have some justice at the federal level. And uh, look, Merrick Garland has come under a lot of criticism from some people on the left saying he's not doing enough, he's not going fast enough, they don't think he's doing enough on January 6th. But I'll tell you, people across the country finally had a sigh of relief today when some justice was finally done. My heart still just goes out to the family of Breonna Taylor. And you're right, the consistent fighting and not being able to rest until there is some semblance, some move towards the acknowledgement that this was somebody who was asleep in her bed. Van Jones, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, what happens now with the Biden administration declaring monkeypox a public health emergency? I wonder if that's going to satisfy critics who say the White House waited way too long to respond and is splitting the vaccine into smaller doses. Is that the best way to deal with the vaccine shortage? A leading expert will join me next. The Biden administration declaring the monkeypox outbreak a public health emergency with more than 7,000 confirmed cases across the country and the majority of cases among men who have sex with men. While there haven't been any monkeypox deaths reported here in the U.S., there's a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety amid difficulty getting a vaccine to guard against it. Here to discuss, Dr. Michael Osterholm, Director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Good to talk to somebody in my hometown. But doctor, I got to tell you, I mean, this is increasingly nerve-wracking for so many people. We heard about the comparisons being drawn to what if we were to have an infectious disease and, of course, the pandemic of COVID-19 comes to mind. Where should people view and how do we assess the level of anxiety that should be there for monkeypox? Well, you raise a critical point, and I think it was highlighted today when the administration also declared this a public health emergency because it left many people believing that now monkeypox was coming to their house. And in fact, it is a very important public health problem. And as you just noted in the lead, uh, it is still really primarily an issue in gay men who are men having sex with men, the behavior, and who are having multiple anonymous partners. There are many gay men who are not at increased risk because they are not experiencing those behaviors. For most people in this country, this is not ever going to be a public health emergency of any kind for them in their homes. What the emergency designation does is it provides the government the ability to actually take some different routes to bring vaccines forward through emergency use authorization, to be able to work with drugs in a way that they otherwise couldn't. So I think it's important not to have everyone feel like, oh my, monkeypox is here like COVID. This is very different than COVID. I'm also very glad that you point out the existence of the potential for a stigma and why people should not be thinking or adhering to that very notion with monkeypox in particular. But, you know, I have to say, I mean, you, you've, when you think about vaccines, here's Dr. Fauci just earlier talking about the possibility of how to address and resolve if there is a vaccine shortage with this area. Here he is. I think if you can show, and there are studies that do show that, that if you administer it in a different way, for example, intradermal versus subcutaneous, that you can get a comparable response uh, at maybe one-fifth of the dose. So I think it's something worth pursuing. Whether they actually are going to be able to do that, I'll leave that up to the 
to the FDA, but to approach that as an alternative way, I very much am in favor of. Are you in favor of that? The idea, I mean, my initial, I'm not a doctor, as you know, but the idea, I just think is the potency, is the efficacy, is the, I mean, what, would that impact any of that by reducing? I would assume it would. It sure could. And in fact, three weeks ago, I wrote an editorial with a colleague in the magazine Science, in which we actually propose that this should be something that should be immediately explored. For those that don't understand, interdermal is where you administer the vaccine just barely under the skin, which is very rich in certain cell types that can give you a better immune response, versus intramuscular, where you have the longer needle that goes in. And so you can use less vaccine and still likely get a similar response. But we still have to confirm that. But right now, we need to do everything we can to extend these vaccines. We have right now, by CDC's own estimation today, at least 1.7 million men who have sex with men in this country who we really need to get vaccine to in terms of protecting them against this uh, virus. At the same time, we are going to be far, far, far short of that. And remember also, right now, 90 nations in this world have reported cases of monkeypox. All of them want the same vaccine that this one single manufacturer in Denmark is trying to make. So we are going to be long on vaccine for some time, and we got to do whatever we can to reduce risk, to extend the vaccine, to make sure that we try to get those people first vaccinated who are at highest risk of serious illness, HIV-infected individuals, people who are immune-compromised. We have a lot of work yet to do with this. You know, it occurs to me, why do we keep stepping on the rake? I mean, people hear the idea of it's one manufacturer in one country doing something. Is that because of proprietary aspects of the drug or the vaccine? Or is that just because it has not been something that posed that worldwide threat to up, to up and increase the production? Yeah, you, you nailed it with your uh, latter comment here. D- don't forget that we wouldn't even have this vaccine but for the U.S. government and their efforts over the course of the last seven to eight years to actually develop a new vaccine. Remember, monkeypox had gone by way of, you might say, historic norms. It was gone. Well, it wasn't because after 40 years of not vaccinating in these countries in Africa where it's actually a virus in animals, we now have 370 million people in these countries under age 40 who've never been vaccinated against smallpox, which provided protection against monkeypox. So we're gonna see a lot more of this come out. The reason why we don't have more vaccine is because, again, who would pay hundreds of millions of dollars to make and stockpile hundreds of millions of doses of something? People said, well, it doesn't even occur. And so now, of course, we're trying to play catch up, but at least we do have this new vaccine. Uh, Our problem is going to be it's going to take months and months to satisfy the needs of the world. You know, you make a good point. The idea is not, not having to create and reinvent the wheel. It's there. It's just getting the ball rolling down the hill. Thank you, Dr. Michael Osterholm. Thank you. I appreciate it. And hello to Minnesotans everywhere out there. A heavy week of news, to be sure. We're going to lighten things up a bit, even if that gets us into a pickle. I'll tell you what I mean in a moment. I want to correct something that we said earlier. Earlier, I said that the Kentucky Attorney General, Daniel Cameron, spoke today about how the actions of two officers involved in the death of Breonna Taylor's were justified. I want to be clear, the timing we said was incorrect. He actually made those comments not today, not even this year, but in September of 2020. All right, let's turn to a much different story, one that might give you a little bit of a smile this Friday, or at least an appetite for a certain snack. 
Goldfish, if you're seeing this, I think we need to create this flavor. A little dill pickle. Shout out to us. <laughs> Cheers. Yum. So look, this mother-daughter duo is just one of many, and I do main many TikTok, uh, TikTokers, excuse me, going viral for relishing. I didn't write that. For relishing in this summer's <laughs> hit flavor, the dill pickle. Some are adding powdered pickle seasoning to all kinds of random foods at home. So while big snack brands flood store shelves with pickled almonds and pickled potato chips, that sounds good, even pickled infused falafel, and wait for it, Pickle pizza, nope, what started out as a novelty is now a big dill. But um, bump, I'm here all week. <laughs> Tip your waitresses, try the fish, people. I gotta ask you guys, first of all, have you tried these sorts of crazy flavors? Do we have these sorts of moments? I'm in pickle, this pickle green? No. Mm. No, pickle jar liquid green? I thought that was yellow. Yeah, le- for, yeah. for lemon. That, that was a, that was a, yeah. um, a test. It's just know, fabulous. And you know, yeah. 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 Well, yeah. you know, and I'm and I'm courageous as an eater, but I haven't mustered the courage oh, yeah. Yeah. as a condiment. Oh, Harry. Wow. Harry. Wow. Uh, I, I don't have any puns. <laughs> I'm not that good at uh, English. Uh, I'll merely say <laughs> that, uh, you know, I'm used to having pickles with a pastrami sandwich. Uh, going wow. to the Jewish deli. Going there perhaps tomorrow to celebrate the Sabbath. Uh, Shabbat. That to me is what pickles are about. You have it on the side with a sandwich. You don't have it in your chips. They don't become, you're, we're infusing everything. I feel like the kids today are out of control. Yeah, that, that, That's what's going on. No, woke culture has just destroyed everything oh, and no. ruined, ruined pickles. Is there, is there woke here. pickles? What? Yeah. <laughs> what? I mean, seriously, I, I do, I, I try a lot of different things. We are in the season, of course, of state fairs. So sure. I will try I've had deep fried pickles. I've had all the deep fried so stuff. Good. It's ri- well. This is the so Iowan and the Minnesotan talking to each other right I mean, now. Do you have a flavor you like? What, what is your state deep fried? I well, deep fried pickles are pretty extraordinary. There's the fried mm. butter, which is basically like a cinnamon roll. It's like they, half- they're just blinking at fried butter. <laughs> no, it's like half a stick of butter <laughs> that they bread. Out what's going on? Yeah, it's, here. it's a half a stick of butter. They bread it. They drop it in a fryer, and then it's just literally like a very buttery. The, the, see, the New Yorkers here are just sort of wondering where the irony and the sort of well, the bitterness and resentment is. I mean, I've been to Iowa. I, I don't <laughs> recall. I remember speeding down a highway at 80 miles an hour. My old boss was really into tacos, and we had to get right. from eastern Iowa, where you're from, okay, yeah. back to, like, Des Moines or something yeah. for this great Mexican food, and we were going 80 miles an hour. Uh, tasty so, tacos? Uh, it might have been tasty I tacos. I bet it was. And that's Jason my, Momoa's a big fan. Yeah. That was my memory of Iowa food. Wow. Now, you know, all this talk of snacks and, and merriment, you yeah. know, today is also National Beer Day. Uh, really? Yes, and a bunch of guys. You are guys. really excited about National Beer Day. It's Friday night. Good luck. It's, well, you know, and you know, look, and you might see the full Windsor not here and think I'm into these prissy Belgian or doesn't. No, I Only just. Only because you oh, called God. it a full Windsor not. Well, that but that's about Laura. That. All I want is a Miller Lite all the time. Just, it both tastes great and it's less filling. And on oh National my. Beer oh. Day. Boy, thank you for the ad. I'll give you an ad for A&W root beer. That would be more of my sort of flavor. I like, you know, my diet sodas, root beer, cream soda. 
not so much into the alcohol. I, I like a things that taste soda. sweet. Are you 90? A cream soda? Yeah, but really? Uh, oh, it's I, all- I, I mean, my, uh, my father was born in 1927, so I like mm. to think that I have the body, or at least the mind, of like a 95-year-old Jewish it's man. It's all Jewish delis with you, Harry. Well, I literally- am who I am, and I figure <laughs> at 10.53 in the evening on the East Coast, if I'm not who I am, then who am I? I have to be me. I got to be me, as another famous Jew, oh Sammy God. Davis Jr. once said. I was going to say, I will sing Sammy Davis. That's, that's one of my oh, hype songs. I know what? I wouldn't think it's something else, but yes, Sammy Davis, you know what? I won't go in because the winds are not. Here. But I'm going to ask you this. There's a, there's a really fun story, too. I mean, away from cream sodas, although I was a soda jerk one summer. Mm. The episode on the jerk part of it. Let me ask you. There's a puppy that was lost. And you remind me of just warm and cuddly things, Harry Enton. So tell me about this. So there was a dog that was found hundreds of miles from where he was taken. He was stolen, and they had microchipped the dog, and they, sure enough, they scanned the microchip, and years after this dog was stolen, they were able to reunite the dog, I believe the dog's name was Sheba, with the dog's owner. And that, to me, is just such a lovely thing, because I'll be perfectly honest with you. While I love everyone on this panel, I love dogs even more. Yes. And when I can ever hear a story of a dog being reunited, what I would give to be reunited with my childhood dog. My dog wasn't stolen. Unfortunately, past as dogs do, but I will love him for forever. Well, all dogs go to heaven. I saw you lean in. That you're a dog person, aren't you? Yeah, actually. So this last week, so I'm from Dubuque, Iowa, and there was this story. Uh, this family, they were on vacation, and their dog went missing. I think mm. one of the parents um, might maybe was watching it, and the entire town, I swear to God, just went out and tried to find this dog, and it was about two days, and they did, and it was the happiest mm. thing, and there was three little girls that just loved this dog Aww. so much. It was the sweetest quick, story. But the, you know, but the best story involving Abby Finkenauer and friends she has from Iowa okay. is yeah. the phone call she got as we were sitting in the green room, which was... The president president, of the United States called her as we were sitting there today because that's who Abby Finkenauer makes friends with. Oh, he found your dog? (laughs) (laughs) This is is the baller we have sitting with us here. Well, you know what they say. I want to know more about that. But you know what they say in Washington? If you want a friend, you get a dog. Thank you all. And thanks for watching, everyone. Back to more serious matters after this break. It's the CNN special report, Megaphone for Conspiracy. Alex Jones, and it's coming up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.